One of our local Christian universities got into some media hot water for the removal of a lesbian professor. Plus, a listener says he has a biblical case why we should never tell people they're going to hell. That and more on this week's Corey Truax Show. You know the drill. This show usually has one, two, at the most, three topics we drill down deep on, but this is one of those shows. I am sharing at a prep sheet of one, two, three, what's a XI? That's 11. I do my show notes now in Roman numerals. 11 things I want to try to get to, so very few of them will get much time. It's going to be a ton of fun of smarter, deeper, and better talk trying to get to the world's ideas and the things going on around us from a biblical perspective so that we can be a well-informed people. Welcome to the Cora Act Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. I get to serve the awesome people of Beachwood Church on Sunday mornings at 1030 in Greenville as their pastor for teaching. We'd love to have you out any given Sunday morning. I will be back up in Waynesville, North Carolina, coming up at the end of the month for my Western North Carolina listeners. That's a really awesome church. I enjoyed being able to preach there earlier this summer, my second and final time there, or at least for this summer. We'll be coming up at the end of July. If you're in the area and without a church home, we'd love to meet you there over at Cornerstone Fellowship in Waynesville, North Carolina. I do want to start here. Anderson University is down in Anderson, South Carolina, thought of as a rival to my alma mater, which is North Greenville University, also where I have my day job. And they recently got a little bit of local media attention, and I wanted to give you the details and respond to those details. Here are the facts. There was a theater teacher there at the university who began to more openly identify herself as a lesbian, and even uh, get into some social media, LGBTQ, let's call it alphabet, some alphabet stuff, just in terms of activism. And we, the Southern Baptist Colleges and most Christian universities, maybe not for students, but for faculty and staff, we're signing statements when we start working there. Some of them are going to be more strict than others. For some, it's going to be no alcohol at all, or maybe no alcohol in public. For Others, there might be there might be various and sundry behavior where if you don't if you don't sign up for this behavior, then maybe you shouldn't work here. And also not only that, maybe you should not just choose to work here, but also if you do these things, then one of the possibilities is yet you're fired or maybe not renewed. And in particular with the South Carolina Baptist institutions, I think all three of us are on something called the Statement on Human Flourishing. That gives the biblical perspective that we we know, that Genesis sets out, that God created men and women, and those are the categories, and that he created men for women and women for men. And that, I'm not, I don't apologize for saying this, I'm going to say it boldly, I hope I don't say it in a tone that's aggressive, but we we know that the designer of sexuality gave exactly one context where sexuality is to be practiced. And that is between one man and one woman in marriage. Every single other sexual expression, from pornography alone in your room to homosexuality in the privacy of your home, all of the rest are aberrant and sinful. 
And as a consequence, we, the Baptist institution, we're going to hold our faculty and staff to that standard, sexual sin being a grievous sin that mars the body of Christ. And we are claiming now as a Christian institution to be in some ways representative in a parachurch way of that body of Christ. This is not hard. It's not much different that if I was living a really openly sinful lifestyle with a woman to whom I was not married. North Greenville would get rid of me in a minute, and they should. In this case, we're in the moment of, uh, of the victimhood status where it, s- sexually immoral behaviors that are particularly gay and lesbian, those are the most important things to be. You're the best person if you're that. And so she became quite open about it, and here's a very important fact. Anderson actually didn't fight or fire her. Anderson didn't renew her contract. That's how it works in higher education for most people, including myself. Every year near the end of summer before the new fiscal year starts, I have to renew my contract. I get a, an offer every year to renew. And North Greenville has the opportunity every year. And all the Christian colleges have an opportunity for most positions to renew or not renew. Most Christian colleges don't do tenure where you, you are a faculty member for a long term and really it's hard to fire you. Even most administrators, higher-up administrators at Christian colleges, you don't get that kind of deal. Your job security goes from year to year. And Anderson did the good, right, moral, and righteous thing in not renewed, in, by not renewing the contract of this theater teacher, theater professor. Now, uh, to, to her, I would love to say, I'm, I suspect she's not a listener to Christian radio or Christian podcast, but to her I'd like to say, you should have been the higher-class person and quit. The high-class thing to do is go, oh, okay, so our values don't match. I'm going to do something else. I'm just going to go somewhere else and work. I I don't want to be renewed. I want to go somewhere else with my time. That would have been the higher-class thing to do. Instead, she decides to make a ruckus and get, get this, get some attention for herself. Who saw that coming? Someone who wants to get a lot of attention. So there's the facts of the case. I want you to know what happened. And also, I think it's important, if it comes up in conversation, to defend that. Yes, we, the universities, we, the churches, we reserve the right to be associated with people who follow our values, and we want that for everyone else. I have long illustrated that this way, where even businesses who are not expressly Christian, whose owners are, I, I have wanted for them to not, to not be infringed upon when it comes to their consciences. So obviously we're thinking about Jack Phillips and his wedding cakes and uh, the sweet sweet old lady out in Washington, I can't remember her name right now, or the photographer in New Mexico or the, the wedding venue in New York, the owners of those businesses that say, my Christian faith won't let me, with any, con- with any conscience in st- in, excuse me, intact, be a part of a gay wedding. I want them to be able to have the freedom to do that. And that extends to every human, because I love humans. I want the gun-hating leftist who is a caterer, I want them to get the catering bid from the NRA and be able to say, no, I don't like you people. I don't, I don't stand with you. I want out. I don't want to cater your event. And I don't want her, that caterer to be legally compelled to participate. I don't want, uh, there was one of those uh, cases for religious liberty that was with a t-shirt shop. People were asking the Christian to post on t-shirts some messages that he found fundamentally immoral 
And he didn't want to use his artistic abilities to design t-shirts for that purpose. The same way, if I'm not going to do this, but if I decide to run for something and I've got objectionable stances to someone who owns a, a print shop and I'm trying to get my campaign signs from that person and that's that, that person says, I don't want your business. I don't want your kind here. I don't mind saying, okay, why would, why would I want that? Why would I want to look at another human being and subject them to myself and say, no, you will do what I want you to do? It's one of the most unattractive features in any adult to look at another adult and say, you will do what I want you to do. And I will use whatever force I have to to make you do what I want, to, want you to do. It's really disgusting. I, I've been around some of those people. I interact with them internet-wise or see them in the media. And it's one of the grossest qualities in a human to look at another human and think you can control them. I don't, for the, uh, I don't like control freaks. On a personal level, I don't get along with them well. I don't want to be controlled, and I'm also courteous and kind enough to not try to control you. So everyone, leave everybody alone. So the, in that context of Anderson University, good for them. They have the they have the right, just like everyone else does. It's not special. It's not a special religious liberty. Everybody should have the right to associate with whom they want to associate. And to break off association when someone specifically voices opposition to their values. Now, I want to expand that. Here's maybe the controversial part. In Anderson's statement, they talked about having L, all the letters, students in their student body. Openly so. I think that's a major problem. I don't, I'm not going to speak about my own institution. I, don't, I, I need to not blur the lines between Corey, the elder at Beachwood, Corey, the broadcaster on his radio, and then Corey, the podcaster, because the podcaster is different than the broadcaster, and there's different standards there. And then my actual day job, I don't want to blur these lines too much, so let me just talk about Anderson. I know that if I'm administrating a Christian university, and our stance on sexuality is the biblical stance, there's exactly one sexual expression that is biblical. And I have students openly flaunting that standard. I, w- I, I would put in our language before anyone ever applies. If you aren't, if you're going to straight up argue against and denigrate our statement of faith and our statement on human flourishing that includes sexuality, we actually don't want you as part of our community. You're not cohesive. Listen, I'm not asking anybody to sign onto a statement of faith that they affirm. You know, the five souls of the Reformation or the core doctrines of the faith. But I am saying, if you're going to come, like, what a rude brat that you'd come to my space that we have spent a lot of money and time and community to build over decades or a century or more. You're going to walk in here like a real brat and just spout your, spout your thoughts on these things? Yes, A, be a kind enough person. Be a decent enough person just to go somewhere else. Because I wouldn't do that to you. I would be courteous enough. I would love my neighbor as myself well enough not to try to come to your spaces and tell you how wrong you are. Have the courtesy to return that. That's all I'm saying. And if, you're, if you are going to come into my space and denigrate me and my thoughts, beliefs, you can go. 
I don't want anything to, I mean, I want something to do with you, but not as part of our community. I can even be friendly in the, in the city, in the town, and, and socially, but colleges and universities are, and churches and ministries are subcultures, and we get to define our values, and if you don't want to associate with our values, get out. That's just courtesy. I would do the same thing for you. All right, I said I had 11 things. I just did one, and it took 13 minutes. I didn't mean to do that. So when we return, I am going to start moving a lot faster through lots of things in the church world, in the civic world, a little bit in the political world as well. We'll do that and a whole lot more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. This will be the first time I've said the name Bet Midler on the show before in a favorable or unfavorable context. I believe she was in a movie that the women of my family watched a lot when I was young. I think it was called, well, I'm not going to remember, Oceans maybe? Is she the wind between the wind beneath my wings woman? I think so. Anyway, Bette Midler said something I thought was admirable, so we'll do that and a whole lot more on the Corey Truax Show right here on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts, find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, it's easy to do. You can also email the show, as one of your fellow listeners did, and we'll get into that email in just a bit. You can find me at show at gmail.com, show at gmail.com. Ten items I want to get to before we're through the end of the show. Let's go, starting with Bette Midler. One, uh, she got into some trouble with the woke leftists out there. Because she is coming to some conclusions that people like J.K. Rowling has come to. I think some conclusions like Bill Maher on the left has come to. That the far secular progressive left, which I want to see from a Christian perspective, this isn't politics, this is culture, that there's another cult, a cult has a bad connotation, but another cult, another religion, it competes with Christianity, it's one of the paganisms of our day, that leftist wokeism has its doctrine, has its creeds, and one of its creeds is not all people who, uh, for example, not all people who give birth are women, or some women have penises. It's those kinds of phrases. That's the same way that we have a creed, like we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. They have their own creeds. It's, it's an other doctrine. It's a pagan doctrine that they they practice. And even secular people or atheist people who are on the left are now looking at that cult with its creeds and saying, you're crazy. And what Bette Midler said was you leftists, she didn't say it this way, but she says, women, you need to see you're being erased. You're, you're getting phrases now all over the media. They won't say women anymore. They'll say menstruators, people who menstruate, pregnant people, people who can get pregnant. Not as far as I know, I was about to say that smart, smart, smartelically, like to say, as far as I know, but no, it's not as far as I know, just fundamental, absolute fact, only women menstruate. Only women have children. I live in a part of the world in a day and age where those sentences are controversial. Only women menstruate. Only women have children. And Midler says, you're being erased. They're... They're, they're taking the word away. There won't even be women anymore. You will only be your function. Your functions are to menstruate and have children. And now you've stripped away womanhood down to only its functions. How disgusting. 
I mean, I can't believe it's Bette Midler making this point, but femininity is good. Femininity is beautiful. The care women practice towards their families. The excellence with which a lot of women care for, support their husbands, their households, their kids. The way they manage households so well. There's beauty in femininity. And we don't have it anymore. You're not women. You're bodies that can menstruate. You're bodies with wombs. And Bette Miller called it out, and I love it. There's a, a thing the woke cult is doing, and it's, it's turning off even folks on the left. They have turned everything regarding gender and sexuality into its most base uses. Sexuality itself is now just, at least on the woke left, sex itself, sex itself is now just genital stimulation. That's not a human with whom you are interacting. That's just a genital stimulator. We have, ultimately, they've turned things so ugly that the sex act itself is as if you're just using a masturbatory aid. That's how disgusting they've made the world. How disgusting the woke, leftist, and this is secular, satanic, demonic worldview, has turned gender and sexuality. Even Bette Midler is catching that. All right, two. I told you I had 11 things today. That was actually the second one. The first one was about Anderson University. Two, Bette Midler and her getting in trouble on the left. Three, (sighs) I read a lot of New York Times. I actually think they do mostly good work. It's liberal work. It's secular work. It's metropolitan work. It has a bias in all three directions. has a bias against religion, has a bias against conservatism as an ideology, and has a bias against suburban and rural cultures. All those are true. And it also is a hundreds of millions of dollar operation with lots of resources, people all over the world and throughout the country. I actually read two fairly strong pro-life editorials from the New York Times in the last couple weeks. So it has some variety of opinion, but they had one recently that I don't really recommend. I don't think it's worth your time, but they're doing a project right now that I can't quite remember the name of. I think it's called Voices, but I don't remember. They interviewed a a woman who's now in her, I think, mid to late 40s, who got pregnant at her Christian college when she was 19. And they tell her story of her saying, abortion was unthinkable to me from my biblical roots, but so was motherhood. And so in an almost disassociative state, a, a month or two after finding out I was pregnant, I was marrying the dad. And months later, I was raising a baby. And then after being married, having that baby, almost in a disassociative state, just getting pregnant and having another baby. And now I'm an adult and my kids are in their early 20s and I love my kids and they're incredible. But if I would have known other options were realistic, I might have considered that. Man, it's mind-blowing. She's looking at 20-year-old kids thinking, yeah, they probably maybe shouldn't be here. Possibly. But the title of it is what I wanted to get to. The title of the story they tell of this woman is how how our experiences shape our opinions. How our experiences shape our opinions. And they were going to do a series here of other people who interacted with abortion, made different decisions, and try to connect how experiences shape different opinions on abortion in particular. 
I can't, I have to admit to you, I saw that sentence, how our experiences shape our opinions, and I cringed. I know that it's true. I know everyone's opinion on things comes from an experience. There are opinions on things because folks experienced abuse, fatherlessness, estrangement from their mom, addiction. They went on a trip and saw poverty in a real way, changed their opinion on something. Yeah, I know. I know trauma and hard things shape our opinions. And what I'm about to say is kind of hard, but I'm going to say it. They shouldn't. If you find that a great deal of your opinions or thoughts or positions or the intensity with which you hold them are shaped by your life experiences, I am saying this. You're not being a full thinker. You are being a feeler, but feelings are not thoughts. And I hate to quote Ben Shapiro here, but it's a very cogent way to say it. Facts don't care about your feelings. We are whole people. We are whole beings. It is important that we do not try to live dichotomously and leave our feelings totally out of our thoughts or our thoughts out of our feelings. But when it comes to forming our opinions, forming our positions, it's actually very, very important that we leave every bias at the door. I'll give you one for me here. My bias is mercy, maybe to an unhealthy extent even. I'm super forgiving. I'm a peacemaker. I have a a natural skepticism of power. My natural demeanor is tailor-made to oppose the death penalty. I'm skeptical that the government will practice it properly. I want to be merciful to even terrible perpetrators. I tend to want to be a peacemaker and a reconciler. It doesn't matter whatever life experiences made me that way. All I can do is ever bend to the facts. And for, my, for me, that's the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, says that in the world that God made, death penalty was one of the options and God is righteous. Therefore, if it was one of the options God had in his own system, it is therefore a righteous option. And if Romans 13 means what it says, that government is there to wield the sword and reward uh, reward good and punish evil, then I must I just bow to that. Does it matter what life experiences lead me to want the other thing? I no, my natural inclination, as we're going to talk about in a minute, I don't like the doctrine of hell right now. I'm not sanctified enough for it. I I can see intellectually how you're supposed to, but the doctrine of hell is jarring when you think about it. But I'm going to bow to it because that's what the facts are, and I have personal opinions and personal experiences that make me want to think, rethink the doctrine of hell. But that's not, that's not given to me to do. And equally, whatever experiences you've had that bring you to opinions and, to opinions and thoughts, we need to separate ourselves from them. It's part of being an adult. It's part of developing our minds that we divorce ourselves from our experiences. So I, I encourage that for you. As you stake out an opinion or position on any given thing, ask yourself, how is my life, how are my experiences shaping this? And 
while that's an important self-exploration, and it's an important thing to work through. It's important to work through with somebody. I, it's one of the reasons I'm a big believer in talk therapy or biblical counseling. But when it comes to policy, it should never do it. And here was the New York Times saying, how our experiences shape our opinions, as if that's a good thing. And it should not be. It's not a good thing. we got to be able to grow up enough to separate those things. All right, third thing today was how our experiences shape our opinions, but they shouldn't. Fourth, just want to give you some other legal news coming out in the Christian world. Out in the University of Ohio, there was a a group of three Christians out there who showed up to a LGBTQ, I, actually, I'm just going to start saying L letters, L letters group meeting type thing with some literature and all accounts, even those that didn't like what they were doing at the university. All accounts were, were kind, but we're, we're trying to start conversations with people who were activists for the for this cause. And one of the students was so upset that they were even having calm conversations about this with people that the student asked the university for a like a no contact order and the guys got in all kinds kinds of trouble and they were ordered not to talk about it anymore. Consider that in the United States of America on a university campus where thought and expression are supposed to be fairly freewheeling, the university says, stop talking about that. You don't get to talk about it. I just want you to know, recently, a court properly found that the University of Idaho was wrong, and these young men have every right to express those opinions. I tell you this, in part because we're, we're on a bit of a winning streak when it comes to religious liberty. There's some jurisprudence being set up here lately that says, hey, governments, if you create a program, you can't exclude Christians just because they're Christians. Hey, governments, if one of your employees prays, you can't punish them for that. That's improper. Hey, governments, if a Christian is in one of your government institutions and refuses to stop saying Christian things, I mean, within within reason, I mean, the, by within reason, I mean, I, I oppose on Christian campuses people being boisterous with any message, a good one or a bad one, a correct one or a false one, if it affects class or if it affects people's ability just to go about their daily lives. But Christians don't have to stop being Christians. That's what that ruling means. And I know that we're in a spot with the Supreme Court that if that got to the Supreme Court, it would be favorable to religious liberty. And so while we're on this winning streak, I feel good about it. I want to celebrate it. All of the winning streaks always make me come back here. Now, what are we going to do with it? You're listening to me right now, and you go to a secular college, and you're a Christian. You're free, man. You're free, young lady. You even have a recent court case you could point to that you can show up and calmly, kindly, say what you think about sexuality. And your peers will hate your guts for it. But if you are kind in your demeanor, if you speak the truth in love, your peers will hate your guts, and your God will honor you. Hey, folks who work in government, it's apparently a Supreme Court case just a couple weeks ago says you can pray if you want. It says you can, in your government job, as long as it doesn't affect your work, you can express faith. Are we going to do that? It could make your, your coworkers uncomfortable. Is it worth it, though? I know that's challenging. I'm not comfortable challenging people. But here we are winning all of these 
religious liberty cases. Well, what are we going to do with them? You're listening to me right now because I know some of these are true. You administrate in a Christian school. I have a listener who is the administrator of a very large Christian school in the upstate. You, you teach at a Christian school. This, the governments are now going to allow for maybe more students who wanted to be there to have the funding to do it. How strategic are you going to be to make sure they can't afford it with the assistance they get? How faithful and careful are you going to be about the teachers you hire and the accountability you put in place to raise up a generation of believers who will go out into a culture and an economy that needs Christian thinking? Let's not waste the victories. That's my message to you on that. If we win, let's use the win. Number five today. Got a good email from a guy named Rodney. I haven't ever had an email from a guy named Rodney, so thanks for listening. Glad you're here. He said to me, as he was watching some of the post-Roe abortion coverage from the left, they would focus often on street preacher types who are out in front of abortion clinics condemning people to hell. And I don't think that's effective. I think that's I think that's dumb. I think being out in front of abortion clinics and saying to people that you're going to hell is a bad strategy. But that's as far as I would have gone before this email. Because Rodney quotes to me, says that Jude 1.9 is specifically telling us not to condemn people to hell. Not to tell people that there is not a hell. Not to say we shouldn't talk about hell. But that... We have a prohibition here to condemn people to hell. And so I looked it up. Here's actually what it says. I am, I've never heard this argument before. I'm always intrigued by these arguments, but here we go. Jude 1.9 says this. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. All right, so we set it up here. We have Michael and the devil are arguing over Moses' body. That's obscure and weird as it is. But here's what the rest of the verse says. Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. So to say, I'm judging you, devil. Maybe in this that judgment is, and you're going to burn in hell forever. Instead, here's what the verse says, but Michael said, the Lord rebukes you. Rodney's argument here is, we should talk about hell as one of the consequences of sin. But if Michael is, being, is saying here, I... I'm not even going to condemn the devil to hell. No human should look at any other human and condemn that person to hell. We warn people of it without condemning them to it. Rodney, I have no argument back to you. Because it's new, it's an, it is a, a new piece of information I haven't considered. I have some natural skepticism and I want to chew on it and ruminate on it and see if anyone else has said it besides you. But it's... Interesting that here's a distinction. I already think doing that is dumb, stupid, ineffectual, uh, counterproductive. I think it's all those things. But now there might actually also be a real biblical prohibition to use. Like it's not just me saying, hey guys, I think a soft answer turns away wrath is a good reason not to behave this way out in front of abortion clinic, uh, clinics. I, I don't think you're going to win a lot of people over with that, but an actual verse regarding specifically condemning people to hell. So, Rodney, good email. Thank you for it. Here's what I'm going to do. We just did our fifth thing. I'm taking an early break. When we come back, 
I'll go through a lot to finish the show, including a lot of post-Roe versus Wade being overturned, post-Dobbs decision. I have a lot of reactions that I don't think have been the right ones on Inside the Faith. I think there's been a lot of po-mouth, like, I'm sorry we're happy about this reactions, even from people I really like. And there's been some other bad reactions to uh, not just from Inside the Faith, but all around. So we'll do that and a whole lot more when you come back for the final segment on The Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk. Most of our final segment here will be about the consequences of things coming out of the Supreme Court this term. Most notably, of course, the aftermath of Dobbs versus Jackson and the overturn of Roe versus Wade. We'll get started on that all in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com and find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. It's easy to do. Look for Corey Truax. Before we get to Roe, here is something encouraging to me that only hit me a good week after Roe because, or excuse me, after Dobbs. Because, of course, that took all the energy. That took all the intellectual heft that I have. This is what occurred to me happened in 2022 in the Supreme Court. These three things taken together. One of the final decisions, I actually think it was the final decision, of the term, the Supreme Court decided that the Environmental Protection Agency did not have the authority to regulate carbon emissions, and specifically coal, the way that they were. It seems to be that a majority of the court holds to the idea that if a, a government agency in the executive branch, so under the president, if they're going to get very specific re- with a regulation that's significant, they need to be empowered by Congress to do so. So Congress needs to make a law that says specifically, the EPA is allowed to do the following. They can't be so vague as to say, and the Environmental Protection Agency has the authority to regulate energy and emissions. They have to be specific about where their, their power starts and stops. That's good. It, it reigns in the executive branch and requires the branch most accountable to the people, Congress, to make the laws and make the rules. That's EPA, um, Environmental Protection Agency. Two, do you remember way back early this year, maybe it was late last year, that the Supreme Court, said to the Centers for Disease Control, you can't just have an eviction moratorium. You're the Centers for Disease Control. How on earth do you think you have the power to say to people, you don't have to pay your rent, you don't have to pay your mortgage? And how did you think you had the power to look at mortgage companies, property owners, and say, yeah, you don't, you guys don't get paid, whatever. You know, we have, a, we have COVID, so... The emergency powers, you, you, we can do whatever we want. The Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. You can't keep extending this moratorium. And they, therefore, put another restriction on the executive branch. Saying without Congress expressly giving you power to do something, you can't just do stuff. You're not a super legislator. legislator. You have to actually get Congress's approval. And if you remember, I think it's sometime this year, might have been late last year. The Supreme Court said to the Occupational Safety Hazard Administration, whatever OSHA stands for, said to OSHA, you can't make most employers, they did it with government employers and healthcare workers, but you can't force 
employers to be your enforcement arm for everyone to get vaccines. The Supreme Court, in this one term, has started the work of saying to the federal government, you have to do the stuff the Constitution gives you power to do. If you're not expressly given the power from that document, you can't do it. The states might be able to, but you can't. And says to the Congress, if you want stuff done, you can't just say to a president, well, you figure it out. You get your administrative state, you guys just get the bureaucrats together, and you figure it out. No, if you want something big and controversial and consequential, you better pass a law. What the Supreme Court has done is wonderfully done some things that I have always said we needed. It, it's a world I have greatly advocated for, or for which I have advocated. Let's put the government back in its box. And the president's not all-powerful, can't do whatever he wants. The federal government's not supposed to do all the stuff it's doing. It's supposed to be doing a lot less than it's doing. And if we want it to do more, Congress should have to pass laws so that we, the people, can make them accountable and say, we didn't want you to do that. We wanted our states, our counties, our cities to have more power, not you guys. This is a good trajectory. I think it could even buy us some time as a republic. I've said a bunch of times into this microphone, the problem with the federal government is that it's a gun. And we're all terrified of who has the gun. The Supreme Court turned that gun into less of one. It turned it from a... I don't know anything about guns. This is a terrible analogy. I wish I'd have thought of something else. But now that I'm in it, uh, they turned it from a F-15, like a fighter jet, they turned it into a AK-47. Now it's just a, you know... It's like a gun you someone in the army uses. I'm bad at this analogy thing when it comes to guns. I don't know, I don't know anything about them. And now we need the court to continue to work on that AK-47 and make it a, you know, a, a little revolver. And from the revolver, it becomes a spray gun, a little, little water, water pistol thing, okay? As we do that, it saves us time as a republic because it says to our countrymen, hey, you don't have to be scared of who the president is. You don't have to be scared of who, of who controls Congress. We're taking more power away from them and giving it to your governor and to your, your state legislature and your county council. They're the ones with the power. So stop being scared of who has the gun that is the federal government because we're going to make that gun smaller and less powerful. This is good, and it got overlooked. Because of the Roe versus Wade overturn, it, we overlooked the fact that the federal government was really put in its place, and that's a good thing for, and it's something for us for which to be thankful. Okay. I think most of the rest of this is the response to Roe. On the left and the right, here's just some thoughts that I wrote down. In terms of how I, I thought we should react, in the evangelical right, I thought Matt Chandler, the, the Sunday after that Friday, he did the best job of it. It was a, what he called a sober celebration. We... We're not going to be shy about this. We celebrate. Children will stop dying. 100,000 fewer the first year will die. There will be more babies. That is a celebration. We're not sorry. It's a sober celebration in that there's more work to do, but yeah, there's, this is awesome. It's, it becomes... I'll stop back up and say it this way. Another pastor that I like a lot, that I've been listening to for almost 15 years... I won't even say his name because I don't want to talk negatively about him. He pastors a church right outside of Washington, D.C. And he took a much different tact 
It was almost like he was sorry. Even saying in his sermon directly after Roe being overturned, in the room he said, you know, some of you in this room, some of you women in the room, you feel like something was taken from you. Okay, but don't we're, we don't sympathize with that. If a woman feels like something was taken from her, she's wrong. And if she's in your church, that's wrong. We don't sympathize with sin. If, the, the, if there's going to be that statement made, some of you feel like you are stripped of something here. And we say, and this is sinful. The, the, the level of autonomy it takes to kill a child that you don't want, this is a sinful desire for autonomy. But his entire attitude was kind of like a poor mouth. I just, I'm, so, I'm kind of sorry we, this, is, this is happening. No, we celebrate. We're happy. We're happy this happened. I, I listen to This American Life. So I think it's the, great, the greatest audio storytelling of the modern era. Like, we're not ever going to get another Paul Harvey, but it's incredible storytelling. And surely, it is by a bunch of non-Christians and anti-Christians. It is brilliant storytelling, though. I love This American Life from NPR. They did an episode after overturning Roe where they followed around and documented like a little documentary of all the women who worked at the abortion clinic there in Mississippi that caused the Dobbs versus Jackson case. They did a very uh, mournful, sorrowful episode of this horrible thing that was happening. They brought on some lady who traffics abortion pills illegally and celebrated her. That was the only celebration in the entire episode. The rest of the episode was all this sadness that abortion was ending. And as good as storytellers as they were, they are, they're super good at eliciting emotion. I was listening to this episode going, you're, you're trying to get me to feel sympathy for the people who have been killing children. I think what I'm about to say to you is perfectly analogous. It would have been no different if after the slave trade ended in the West after William Wilberforce in Britain and after our ending of the slave trade here, if they would have done a documentary series about all the men who own boats and how sad it is that they can't go across the Atlantic anymore and traffic in these humans. Don't you feel bad for them? It was almost like they were doing a documentary series of going back to 1860 and a bunch of Southern people who lost their slaves after the Civil War, and don't, you, and don't you feel so bad that they don't get to have their slaves anymore? Isn't it so sad? And no, I, I'm listening to that going, no, I'm not sad. I'm glad these people are losing their jobs. I'm glad their jobs won't exist anymore. No, I'm not sorry that these children will come into the world. I'm excited about it. And while we need to have enthusiastic compassion to help when problems are now going to arise and be generous, I'm not going to say sorry for being excited about this, and none of us should. Now, you don't need to cross the line. Like, I've mentioned him before, like Matt Walsh just says, rub it, rub it in their faces today. Rub their tears and, and just or celebrate their tears today that they're so sad about it. All right, you're, good gosh, you're not any fun. But the, the idea of celebration, yes, I'm, I'm not sorry. This is good. I'm glad it's happening. What else about Roe I wrote down here? 
Uh, I got to skip that one. It's a sub point. All right, let's do this one. I had some ideas. Some ideas on some things we might want to consider as a state. I don't think the federal government should do these things, but states that are going to be eliminating abortion or heavily regulating it, here's some ideas we ha- I had. One, we might want to consider subsidizing natal care for lower and middle class families. So maybe you put an income on it. But from what I understand, having a baby in a hospital is like super expensive. I I really wasn't aware of that until a lot of my friends started having children in hospitals and some of them uninsured and all that. I, I could support that. And I think about South Carolina who has this giant budget surplus. If you're asking me, do I want a tax return or could we subsidize for lower income people their hospital care for when they have babies? Yeah, I think I could support that. I don't support much in terms of government programs, but I, I could get behind that. I think this is, so here's my four ideas on how to have pro-motherhood policies. Two, we have to start more strictly enforcing child support. Men who don't pay child support, we need, we, we need to get a lot of resources to demand that they do that, and then don't imprison them, but get them to work and use their money and interfere as a government to take their money from them and give it to the children that they have fathered. And make sure that men know if you are si- if you are siring as the going to sire children, I don't know how to say that. You know you better know there could, there could be some consequences for you. You're not running away anymore. Like we're really going to start enforcing child support laws. And three, we got to make adoption more affordable. It's insane how expensive adoption is. And again, I'm willing to say, even for, for a time, maybe a subsidy, maybe using government money. If we're, gonna, if we're going to have a bunch of government money being taken in taxes, maybe one of the things we do is start subsidizing adoptions. And then finally, I had an idea that does go from the federal government. Uh, you know, I want Social Security to be eliminated altogether. But I had this thought. For any woman, at any time, if they decide, I want to give myself maternity leave, because right now our law means you can't be fired. If you want to take maternity leave, you, our law isn't that you have to get paid, but you can't lose your job because of it. Okay? So how do they, what do they do for money during that time? I would like to consider this. What if we, a woman says, I want 16 weeks of maternity leave, so I want four months of my projected Social Security benefit. Go ahead and send me those checks once a month for four months. And now... When it's time, it's 60, she's 67 and she's ready to retire. Well, now she has to retire and get eligible for Social Security at being 67 years and four months. She just moved her benefits up, and now she has to work a little longer so that she can give herself paid maternity leave. That's one of my ideas. I'd love to get any of yours or some feedback on mine if you have them. And now I'm running out of time. All right, let's go as fast as we can. I saw some polling on the overturning of Roe versus Wade, which just explained to me and showed me that people just don't know what happens in Roe versus Wade. Uh, so here's what I found. 55% of people said they opposed overturning Roe versus Wade. But 49% of people said they liked abortion to be banned after six weeks. And 72% of Americans, including a majority of Democrats, said they'd support abortion ban after 15 weeks. So the Americans don't know what Roe versus Wade did. It said that you states couldn't regulate abortion in the first 
trimester, and then it had to have they had to be very careful about second trimester uh, restrictions. And then Roe versus Case, excuse me, Casey versus Planned Parenthood threw out the trimester system and brought in a viability system. And so that's your uh, 22 weeks, whatever it is, a child can live, and so states can regulate at the point of viability. It also tells me that abortion on demand for any reason at any time is a very unpopular position in America. Uh, what do I... I'm, uh, with this much time left, let's do... Let's do this one. The There's a study that, uh, that just uh, a thousand pastors that Christianity Today published going into July 4th asking about how how much, if any, if the church is going to celebrate America during their services. And what they found was patriotism in church services and patriotism amongst American pastors is waning. I think that's just a matter of age. We, the 40 and under crowd, are, are just a lot less patriotic generally, but in particularly theologically, we got to witness the excesses of seeing America as God's chosen, seeing America as a, a new Israel, as it were. We've seen the implications and consequences of our getting down in the dirty deeds of politics and how that affected the church's witness. And the consequence of that is, we're, yeah, we're, we're less patriotic. There's a place for affinity for where you live. If you want to call that patriotism, that's fine. I think I talked about that some last week. I really do love this place. I think it's incredible. I think our prosperity and security and safety, uh, what, what we've exported to the rest of the world and medical technology and food technology, I think this place is awesome. I have a lot of affinity for where it is. But this younger crowd, we've just caught on that patriotism is, does not mix well with our Christianity. We're going to be kingdom above all else. And I don't want that to alienate our older folks. That's just where we stand, and I think we can worship together even though... To see that a little differently. I didn't get to my last little bit I wanted to, but maybe we'll bring back those next week. Thanks for being with me on this lightning round of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back with another new edition next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.